mind. You might check in with Corrine, though, and see how she's doing. Um, no, it is funny because you forget, like, having little babies in the house, you forget, like, during the night, you, you, they, I don't know what it is, like, about 3 a.m., they're like, yeah, it's not time to sleep anymore. Let's just get up and have fun and do things, and you're trying to, like, get the pacifier back in their mouth, and they work against you. You're like, I'm on your side here. I'm trying to help you. What is, what's going on? Uh, but we are very grateful. They're three uh, wonderful young, young uh, children, and we're, uh, we're glad that we've had as, as much help and support as we have as well, and I'm glad that Corrine is a fantastic mom um, making it work. Um, so uh, the other day, we have some great elders in our church, uh, some really, really good guys. Yeah, I've got an amen already. That's good. Um, we've got six really good elders. There's seven of them, but there's six really, really good ones. And I want to tell you about the one real quick. Um, so this has been a while back, and uh, we have one of our elders that comes into the office on Tuesdays. Uh, he shall remain nameless, Leon Ross. Uh, but we were having a conversation, and uh, Leon told me and Jordan, he was like, you know, guys, I've been really impressed by your preaching. Oh, well, thanks, Leon. That's, that's a really nice compliment. But I, I haven't actually told you the whole story, because that sounds like a nice compliment, but you really need to hear the context to know it was kind of mean, actually, what he said. So we're uh, sitting there in a room, and uh, Leon is, is just talking about his personality. He's talking about the type of person that he is. And he says, you know what? It really doesn't take much to impress me. Just not much at all. I'm, I'm easily impressed. And then there was a little pause as I think he switched gears. I like to think he had a change of thought and it just something different came into his mind. But he said, I'm easily impressed, very easily impressed. You know, your guys' preaching has been impressive lately. And I'm, you can imagine the compliment didn't land so well with that context, that like situation there. It wasn't quite as nice. We still appreciate Leon, still know what he was going for. He, we, we know, we know Leon, we love Leon. But there is some context, right? There's some situational context that you have to kind of know what's happening in order to get the full picture. And what we're going to talk about today is exactly that. This is a familiar concept that I think that we completely separate from the situational context of what is happening in the story. Um, if you take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 16, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 15, starting in verse 15. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 15. There's a little setup here, and we're going to jump in the middle, and we'll, we'll talk about the setup here in a second. But um, this is Jesus. He's off by himself with his disciples. They're off doing their thing. Jesus is teaching them. He's talking with them. He's interacting with them. He's getting them set up for the ministry that they're going to have after he's gone. And uh, he's asked this question about who, what's, the, well, what's going on in the world? Like, who do people think that I am? Which is a strange question. It sounds like, you know, an identity crisis a little bit. But what he's wanting to know is if there's people out there in the world, like, do they believe that I'm this person? particular person that is a big deal in first century Israel and maybe not so much a big deal today. Who do people say I am? And, and the apostles answer, well, some people think you're like Elijah. He's the old prophet in the Old Testament. They think that he came back to life or the spirit of Elijah lives in you. Some people think you're that. Some people think you're John the Baptist who was, had actually been beheaded and, and they think maybe you came back to life. You know, John the Baptist come back to life. I don't know why they just didn't think like you're Jesus from Nazareth, but it was all these dead people. But it was the idea that Jesus was somebody significant. He was somebody special. He was somebody unique. And people acknowledged that. They didn't know exactly what that looked like, but they acknowledged that. And uh, so he says, what about you guys? What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, this is a familiar passage. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, 
You read that and you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds, like, that sounds like what I read in my Bible. Sounds pretty typical, pretty normal. If you were to run into like a grocery store or run into a mall and you were just to stand in the center of that mall and you were to shout out, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. People would look at you strange, but they would just go on about their day. It wouldn't really affect anybody. You would, they might give you a wide berth, but it, it wouldn't really change anything. It wouldn't really mean anything. And, and I think, I, I could be wrong, I think that when we read that passage, we're reading that, and it doesn't really, it just kind of slides right on by. You're the Messiah. We know it's significant because it's in the Bible, but it just, it kind of slides right on by. You're the Messiah. Okay, cool. The Son of the living God. That's pretty nice. But something is happening here. In fact, in a few verses, Jesus told his disciples to keep this quiet. He told them, don't tell anybody that you believe this, which is such a strange thing. And I think we'll understand why he did that in a few minutes. You probably noticed that uh, we as a society are, are pretty polarized. Like if I were to throw out certain issues, we're, we're pretty 50-50. And maybe in the church the split would be a little bit different. But we're pretty polarized when it comes to certain uh, big cultural topics. Pretty much straight down the line. But there are a few things that everybody in the world can agree on. Everybody in the United States can agree on. There's a few things that we're all for or we're all against and I, I don't want to speak for anybody in the room, but I think everybody is against internet cable companies. <laughs> There's nobody who's like, you know, it is a joy to have the Comcast guy come over between the hours of 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. I just love staying at home all day waiting for that guy to come. I love getting that bill. It's fantastic. I feel like I'm getting good value for what I'm paying. Nobody, nobody. In fact, the number one um, business in the United States for like people hating it is a cable company. That's, that's it. Nobody likes it. Nobody is real fond of airlines. Nobody is like, you know, nobody walks around unless you work for these companies wearing, you know, different airline logos. Nobody's satisfied with the amount of seat space that we get. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes the, the whole, people don't like the whole experience. They're just not, they're not satisfied. There's got to be a better way, right? We've got all these situations where people get, keep getting kicked off airlines. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. But for me, the thing that I dislike the most, and this is saying a lot from a person of my personality type, the thing that I dislike the most, we don't call it the DMV here in Minnesota, we call it the licensing center, but I'll tell you what, there are, I would rather pull out my own teeth with a wrench than go into the licensing center. Because every time I go in, every single time, I have super low expectations. I go in thinking this is going to be awful, and every single time, they underwhelm me. I go in and leave even more frustrated with what is going on. But they have a monopoly on the situation. No, there's nowhere else you can go. You've got to go through the government to get all this stuff done. There was a, uh, I'll tell you the story, I'll tell you what happened to me. At least this is from my point of view. If you're talking to the clerk, they might have a different take on it, but I'll give you Patrick's uh, version of this. I walked into the DMV, the licensing center, and it's always like that. There's always about 5,000 people ahead of you in line, and you're just like, oh my goodness, here goes the rest of my week. And uh, some of you are like, if you live in certain parts, if you live in the cities and you go into like the, the, the cities, oh, it's just rough. But I go in. And I have got a document that I need to uh, give to them to transfer the title of a vehicle to myself. So I go in, take my number, wait, 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 wait. Finally get up to the line, finally give the clerk the document, 
and she says, oh, you forgot to date it. Ah, oh, whoops, okay. So I grab a pen. This is, this is early in the year. I grab a pen and I write, uh, you know, January 10th, and I wrote 2015 instead of 2016. She is right here. She sees me with a pen. She sees me filling out the date, and I accidentally write the previous year. Common mistake. I'm only human. It's only been a couple weeks since it's been this year. And she looks at me and she says, that's the wrong date. And I think, oh, whoops. Fives are easy to make sixes. No big deal. So I'll just draw a little loop on the bottom. And she says, no, sir, you can't do that. Well, you, you just saw me sign the paper. Nope, you're going to have to fill out this document, and it's going to have to be sent into this bureaucratic nightmare, and then they're going to send you a document back that's fresh and new that acknowledges that you made a mistake, and then you can come back in and submit this document. And I'm like, uh, please tell me you're kidding. Nope, they don't joke at the DMV. They're not, it's not, there's, humor is just not a thing there. It's not funny people. So she gives me this form, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm almost devastated, as if a girl has just rejected me. Like, I'm broken up. Like, are you kidding me? So I go back out to my car, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I cannot wait a month to do this. This is ridiculous. So I dig around in my car for a pen, little small act of defiance against the government, and I turn my five into a six. And then I think, well, if I go back in, she's just going to see me and she's going to know what I did because she's going to remember me. So what I did is I drove to a different licensing center location and I got my thing done. Now, you're applauding for fraud, right? You know, that's (laughs) bottom line. That's like not a great thing, right? That's not a great thing to do. But it was so frustrating. Like you feel there's certain situations and maybe it's your work or maybe it's whatever, but you feel like you have no power and you do those small little tiny rebellious things and it makes you feel good about being a human being. Those small little acts of defiance against this faceless, nameless entity. And I felt like that a little bit because I didn't have any, like, power over this situation. In first century Israel, it's, it's hard to describe the powerlessness that the average person felt just, just living their life. They felt powerlessness because they were oppressed by this, this giant organization called the Roman Empire that had come in and just shown them that they were nothing. They had just come in and barely with any military power or might, had just wiped them out and taken control, levied taxes, started like incorporating their way of life. And the the average Jewish person, the average Joe in first century Israel, hated it, hated the presence of Rome, hated the fact that there were people of their own nation that were conspiring with them to tax them. People were heavily taxed. They hated it. And there was a sense of powerlessness. Psychologists tell us that a lot of rage that people have, a lot of anger that people have, come from powerlessness, the inability to do something about your situation. And so religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had a monopoly on God. And if you wanted access to God, you had to go through these guys. And people knew these guys were crooks. They knew they were raising the taxes on the temple tax so that you could have access to God. They hated that. You would Rome came in and they started partnering, contracting their their, uh, taxes out to certain Jewish people. And so these guys would say, I will buy that uh, contract and I will start taxing my fellow Jewish country. 
countrymen, and I will take some off the top. And they were getting rich off it. The Pharisees, or excuse me, the Sadducees who controlled the temple were getting rich off the taxes. These, these, these Jewish men that were tax collectors that were colluding with Rome were getting rich off that. And then there were just Roman soldiers everywhere. I mean, you're just constantly reminded that this country was not yours. This promise that you had, been, you had heard about in the Old Testament, that Abraham had been given by God. It's just, this was not true for you. This was not real. And you can imagine that this was so frustrating. But they did have one hope. They did have one thing to which they could cling. And that was this idea of the Messiah. Just one thing. That was it. You couldn't really do anything else. There were people that tried, but you couldn't really do anything else. The Messiah. And they looked at the Old Testament, and sometimes they used verses that we do, sometimes they didn't. They looked at the Old Testament, they said, you know what? It's bad now, but someday there's a Messiah coming, and it's going to be okay. You can imagine that retired guys got up early and all went to the McDonald's for coffee, and they would talk about this. They'd be like, it's bad now, but the Messiah is going to come. The Old Testament promised that there would be a Messiah. And they believed that the Messiah was going to be a political leader, and he was going to come in, and he was going to just fix the government. He was going to kick out the crooks that were in the temple. He was going to kick out the tax collectors. He was going to make things fair. They also believed that he was a military leader. And that he was going to come in, he was going to whip up an army, and he was just going to, with the help of God, he was just going to like drive out the Roman presence from Israel. They believed that he was a great orator, that he would get up in front of crowds of people and he would just inspire them, Braveheart style, William Wallace, and everybody would just be like, this guy's amazing. He would get up and he would be a fantastic teacher and he would teach everybody the law and everybody would repent and everybody would turn back to God. And so when they were sitting there and they saw the Roman soldiers or they saw the taxes being collected or they were paying money through the nose, they could stop and they could say, but at least the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. That's the hope we have, the Messiah. That's what we got, the Messiah. And in fact... Quite a few messiahs had come. Jesus wasn't the first that anybody had called Messiah. Quite a, History is littered, Jewish history is littered with messiahs, discarded messiahs. One guy got a bunch of people all together, and I guess they got their pitchforks and their, you know, their knives or whatever, and they, they stormed Jerusalem. They're, this was the army, this was the, the military leader that was going to come free Jerusalem from Roman oppression, and they got crushed like that. The Roman army came in and said, bam! All those people were killed. Uh, the, the, the leader was made an example of. And I guess those guys in the coffee shop were like, well, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. Another Messiah came along and said, you know what? Just like Moses parted the Red Sea, I'm going to part the Jordan. And I guess he was charismatic and he got all Pentecostal on them. He was excited about what he could do. And he brought a bunch of people down to the Jordan River and he was going to part the Jordan River. And people just got so excited and so wound up that a few people jumped in the Jordan River and drowned. And then the rest of the people kind of lost their enthusiasm pretty quickly because there's no miracle. And I guess those guys at the coffee shop were like, well, I guess that wasn't the Messiah. So history was kind of littered with Messiahs that just didn't cut it. They just weren't the right fit. They just didn't fit the bill, so to speak. So one historian, if you, uh, if you read uh, Jewish history, Josephus wrote this about the Messiahs. There were lots of them. He said, They were deceivers and deluders of the people, and under the pretense of divine illumination, prevailed upon the multitude to act like madmen. People just went crazy because of the powerlessness, because of the oppression, because of the taxes, because of the frustration. They needed a Messiah. So, into all that comes Jesus. 
And Jesus doesn't claim to be the Messiah, you'll notice. People keep asking him, like, will you tell us? Are you the Messiah? Just tell us plainly. Even John the Baptist, like, hey, are you the guy or are we supposed to wait for somebody else? I mean, people wanted to know. So there were the rumors swirling around about Jesus and who he was, but he never came out and made that claim. He never himself came out and made that claim. So you get to this point in Jesus' ministry, he's got his disciples with him. Who do people say that I am? Well, John the Baptist and Elijah and some other great prophet. And who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, because it's always Peter, got up and he said, well, you are the Messiah. And Jesus gets pretty excited about that answer. Because he talks of a little bit, and Jordan's going to speak about this next week, like flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter. Our Heavenly Father revealed that to you. You are the Messiah. Now understand what Peter was saying. Peter was saying something pretty significant. This is a big deal. Because he, what he's saying is like, you are the guy. This whole mess of a country, this whole mess with the Romans, this whole mess with the temple, this whole mess with the taxes, you're the guy that's going to come and fix it. That's what Peter is saying. You're the guy that's going to come in and just sweep all this garbage out. You're going to fix it, is what Peter's saying. But almost more importantly than that, Peter is saying, I am signing up for this rebellion. Because Romans didn't take too kindly to rebellious figures organizing groups of people. They would crucify them as an example to the the other people saying, hey, if you rebel against us, this is what happens to you. So when Peter says, I think you're the Messiah, Peter's not only acknowledging something important about Jesus and what Jesus will do, Peter is signing up for the rebellion. Peter's joining the cause. Peter's saying, I'm in. I mean, even to the death. And you know that Peter struggled figuring this out because even when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he had his sword with him and he tried to start a riot right there. But Peter was in. He was saying, you're the guy. You're going to fix this. And I am in. I am in. I'm going to partner with you. I've got your back. I want to be there with you. I want to bring in this rebellion with you. So when we hear that, when we hear that Peter says, you're the Messiah, it's a pretty big deal. We hear, you're the Messiah, and we're like, yeah, okay, sure, we're at church, of course we're supposed to hear that. But Peter was saying, you're going to lead a rebellion. You're going to fix this, and I am with you. And I want you to know something, church, this is important. When we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and we don't believe those two things, we're not actually declaring Jesus Messiah. If we don't believe that Jesus has come to fix the world, and if we don't believe that we are signing up for the rebellion, then we're kind of missing the point. Because it's not just a title that he's got. Well, hey, why don't you be the Messiah? You be in charge. You seem like a smart person that can do some cool miracles. Why don't you be in charge? No, we're saying, Jesus, you came to fix it, and I'm going to help. I'm here to serve. I'm in. I'm part of this rebellion. Man, this is a big deal. Because Jesus Saying that Jesus, saying Jesus was the Messiah got you kicked out of the religious community. In John chapter 9, there was this guy that was healed of his blindness, and his parents were brought in for questioning by the, the Pharisees, and they were like, hey, so is, do you really believe Jesus is the Messiah? And the parents were like, eh, no, 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 why don't you ask our son? Like, throw our son under the bus. Because the text says that if you acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, you got kicked out of the religious community. And guess what? The whole country was a religious community. You were shunned. You couldn't do business. You couldn't interact with people the way that you had before because you had acknowledged this crazy truth about Jesus. But Messiah talk also brought out the Romans. Have you ever been with somebody who's just, they're just that person and they're going through TSA and they're just that person that has to joke about having a bomb or something stupid like that? And you're just like, oh, come on, really? In 2017? Come on, seriously? I remember crossing, uh, in college, crossing the border into Canada, which, you know, like, 
pretty benign border crossing. And the, the Canadian border guard said, can we look in your trunk? And one of the guys, one of the college students, because frontal lobes, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's where you'll find the bomb. Five hours later, we're sitting in this waiting room. They've, like, torn the car apart. They're in Terry. I'm like, come on. But that's what, that's what declaring Jesus the Messiah would do for you. And do you see now why Jesus would say, okay, you believe that? Let's keep that to ourselves for now. You see that? You read that, and you're like, why would Jesus tell people not to declare he's the Messiah? Because they were declaring rebellion on the way things were. They were declaring rebellion on Rome, and they were saying Jesus is the person to fix it. That's why he said, let's keep it quiet till we get a few other things lined out, till I teach you a little bit more about what this rebellion is going to look like. This is pretty exciting stuff. Change, movement, something's in the air. There's something happening here. And this verse, that verse we just read, tells us that, that Jesus, or that Peter declared Jesus was the Messiah. And I think he was kind of speaking for the other, the other apostles too. But it's a big deal. Let's talk about rebellion for a second. Um, do any of you ever engage in small acts of rebellion, like changing the five to a six on your DMV form? Any, any of you ever do that? Just to, just to show that you're still a, in charge, you're still the king of your own life. Uh, how many of you ever like have touched the surface of a wet paint, do not touch? You're like, I, you know, no sign is going to tell me what to do. I'm just going to touch it. I, I just have to see if it's dry. Why do you have to do that? Or how about this next picture? How about, uh, I, I like this one. <clears throat> Defacing pub, public property, including placing chewing gum here is illegal. Fines up to $1,092. And you know, a lot of you would have done this. A lot of you would have been chewing gum and you would have been like, put it on there, take a little picture, see how rebellious I am, you know, and probably pulled it off later because you didn't want to really get in trouble and be charged $1,000 for gum, right? But have you ever committed a small act of defiance? Just a small act of defiance. Um, I used to work at a restaurant that served breakfast, uh, and if people were rude, the wait staff would give them decaf coffee in the morning. Oh, you're going to be rude to me? Let's just see how you do without caffeine the rest of the day, huh? See how that goes. We don't know how much power people have, but they like to take that power and exercise it. Just be nice to the wait staff, right? Um, one student for this teacher that they didn't care for, they would staple their homework assignments that they turned in on the top right-hand side. Just a small act of defiance. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't get it. Just try, imagine the teacher trying to open that up, trying to figure that out. Just a little act of defiance. Just a little act of rebellion against Rome. I mean, this is me standing up. This is me doing my thing. One guy I read about this week uh, submitted his taxes in uh, Roman numerals. Which is a lot of work, right? You're like, take that, Rome. Take that, IRS. He got audited. Rome crushed the rebellion, right? Small acts of defiance. One time, Jesus was preaching about these Roman soldiers that were just everywhere, just doing their thing everywhere. And the people hated their presence. They're just constant reminders of that you were not your own, you were powerlessness. Just constant reminders that things were not the way that they should be. Um, and one of the things, and, and most of you are probably familiar with this, but one of the things that Roman soldiers, just any Roman soldier could do, is he could go to whatever uh, Jewish citizen, and he could say, hey, this stuff that I'm carrying, I want you to carry it for me. And the person had to do it. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't not do it. That was just, you were required to do it. 
Uh, and Rome did have these rules. So you can only make someone carry it one mile. So at least they were, you know, benevolent. But imagine you're on your way with your family to a picnic and you're all excited and the food's warm or fresh or whatever. I don't know. You're on your way and then you see a Roman soldier and you accidentally make eye contact or you're like, oh no. And he's like, come here, carry my stuff. And you're like, come on. Like, like it wasn't the end of the world, but imagine how inconvenient it was. Imagine you were on your way to an appointment, a doctor's appointment, and you're like, you scheduled this months in advance or whatever. And the Roman soldier's like, hey, come here. And you're like, no, I've got an appointment. Didn't matter. You were powerless. And it wasn't a huge inconvenience. It was just this small little thing, just this little thing. You would be a mile out of your way and you'd have to walk back a mile. I guarantee you teenage boys use this to explain to their parents why they were late coming home. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they did. Oh, Roman soldier got me. I had to go a mile. Okay, yeah, sure. I'm sure that's true. But I mean, you can just imagine how frustrating at your end of a long day. You're coming home and you just want to sit down. You've been doing manual labor all, all day and this Roman soldier says, all right, come with me a mile. And so Jesus is talking about this and he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile. Now, think about this. Think about Jesus saying this. They think Jesus might be the Messiah. They think Jesus might be coming to lead a rebellion. So they're listening to everything that he's saying with this in mind. Roman soldiers are probably there. Hey, this guy's got a crowd. Remember, he's up in the mountains. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. So maybe he's off by himself. I don't know. Pharisees are there like, who is this guy? What is he, what is he trying to stir up in everybody? What's going on here? And he's talking about this thing, this idea. Hey, if, if anyone forces you to go a mile. Now, think about that. Just how frustrating that would be, how annoying that would be. It's not the end of the world, but you would be annoyed if somebody came right now and said, hey, you got to walk a mile down the road right now. Doesn't matter whatever you're doing, just got to do it. You'd be like, oh, come on, that's just the worst. It's just this constant reminder of what's going on. And so Jesus is preaching. He's like, he's saying, you know how we all resent the Romans? The crowd's like, yeah. I don't know if he actually did this, but this is my interpretation. You know how we all hate walking that mile thing? Yeah. Rebellion. Let's get, what do we got to do? What should we do? You really want to stick it to the Romans? Yeah. Like, what should we do? How, what's our act of defiance here? And Jesus says, all right, listen, listen up, guys. Next time that happens, next time a soldier looks at you in the eye and says, hey, walk with me a mile, and you're like, oh, you know, here's what you should do. This is good. This is good. Walk with them two miles. The crowd had to be like, huh? What? That is your act of defiance? That's your act of rebellion? lean into it and do more? I mean, we have this whole saying that's kind of like uh, uh, culturally appropriated by everybody, but go the extra mile, and it comes from this. It comes from Jesus saying this. If someone forces you to go one mile, guess what you should do? Go another mile. That'll really show him, won't it? That is so contrary to our American way of life because we hear that, and if we heard Jesus say that, we did not believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, what we would say is, that is absolute, that's garbage, Jesus, because what you're doing is you're enabling someone to take advantage of you. That's what you're doing, Jesus. Next time, he's going to make somebody go two miles because you've set this standard. You've let yourself take in, be taken advantage of. That is what the modern American would say if they heard Jesus say this outside the context of Scripture. They'd be like, you're just making it worse. you got to set boundaries, sharp lines. One mile, drop the bag, let him know he's not your boss. That's how you do it. That's how we would respond. We've got this little problem that this is in the Bible. And we believe Jesus was somebody significant. We believe that he was somebody important. We believe that he was somebody that mattered and what he said was important. Jesus said, you know that person that's coercing you? Serve them. Not just because, but even, as my dad was saying earlier, out of love. You know that person that's forcing you to do something 
lean into that thing that they're forcing you to do and show them love. Now, there's so many cool things. I mean, we could peel this back so many different ways. I mean, honestly, this is brilliant for so many reasons, but it takes away that sense of powerlessness somebody has. Somebody's forcing you to do something, and you're like, you're not going to force me. I'm going to do it on my own free will, and I'm going to go further. All of a sudden, you got power back. That's important. But it's also an act of defiance because Jesus is saying this rebellion that I've come to bring is not like anything else. We're not going to employ violence. We're not going to try to make things better through force. We're going to change the world through acts of defiance against the way the world operates. We're going to break the cycle of violence by not responding in kind. We're going to love our enemies. We're going to bless people that insult us. This is defiance against the culture, against the way things are, the way things were in the first century, and the way things are today. This is rebellion, and this is the type of rebellion that Jesus asks us to engage in. It changes the dynamic. I don't know. What do you think that Roman soldier would do if you got to the end of the mile and he's like, okay, rules say you got to drop the pack. And you're like, no, let's go. Let's keep going. Now, maybe that Roman soldier would be like, sweet, I'm in control. I have power. Maybe he would, but maybe it would change the dynamic. Maybe you are saying like, I choose to serve you. And all of a sudden this Roman soldier, you're not coercing me anymore. I'm choosing something here. I have the power, and I choose to use this power not to defy you, but to serve you. Wow, that's so fascinating. It just blows my mind. I don't think we think about that to the depth that Jesus was talking about here. Maybe, uh, I was trying to think of a scenario that fit today, and, and I, I just couldn't think of a good one, so you'll have to think one, of one in your life where someone, a coworker, a some, a friend, an enemy is coercing you to do something and you don't want to do it and you want to show them who's boss and you want to show them that you're in charge of your own life. I was just trying to think of like, what if we responded by just leaning into that act of service and do, going above and beyond and doing a good job for somebody that was trying to coerce us into doing something? They might say, they might not learn a lesson because we want to teach them a lesson, right? We want to teach them that you can't control me. You can't tell me what to do. But maybe, maybe they would feel like, oh, I've got the power, I've got the control. But maybe, and more importantly, and worth the risk, maybe it would change them. That's worth that risk, that maybe your act of defiance against that expectation, the way people normally are, the way the world normally works, would change them. It's an act of rebellion against the way things are. We talked about this uh, a number of months ago uh, in, a, in a sermon about the kingdom. And every time Jesus talked about the kingdom, he was talking about this rebellion. A rebellion against the way things are, the way, things people, the way people expect you to respond. This Messiah was recruiting tax collectors. That's who Matthew was. He's recruiting the people that, that everyone found so frustrating. Rather than like fighting and rather than hating, he said, I'll love you. Why don't you follow me? And he changed Matthew, who wrote this gospel. He was recruiting prostitutes. Rather than stoning, rather than hating, he was recruiting them into followers. And that is what changed their life. Not that you're a terrible person. You're a horrible human being. You need to be ashamed of the way you are. He loved them into transformation. And I know I can, I can sense in the room, some of you don't feel like that concept is true, that God would love us into transformation. God needs to force us. God needs to have a heavy hand. 
But Jesus showed us that He can love a rebellion to the way things are. He can love us into changing who we are. That's amazing. So here's a question for you. Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Careful. <laughs> Careful. Because that's just not a question about His identity. I mean, in part it is. But this is the thing. This is why I think this is so cool. Because this question, the reason Jesus got so excited about this wasn't because of what it meant about Jesus. Do you think Jesus' identity changed because Peter acknowledged that he was the Messiah? No. Jesus was going to do what he was going to do and he was going to be who he was going to be. Why do you think Jesus was excited about Peter's acknowledgement of this? Because of what it meant about Peter. Because of what it meant about him. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Are you willing to acknowledge that he has come in this world to fix things? And are you willing to acknowledge that he chooses to use us to do that? He chooses to use us to be the person that's going to go the extra mile, to be the person that's going to, to love instead of hate, to be the person that's going to bless instead of curse. He chose us to bring that rebellion, to bring that kingdom into the world. That's what this series is all about. It's about the kingdom, and this is the beginning glimpses of it, where, where Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. If you want to be part of the kingdom, if you want to be part of this incredible thing called the church, it starts with this, that you believe Jesus is the one, and you are signing up to bring that, that solution into the world. That's what you're claiming when you say that Jesus is the Messiah. We're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap this up and uh, and say a word of prayer in closing. I just wanna I just wanna acknowledge that we as a church have been trying really hard to focus on Christ, to acknowledge that Christ is who He said He was, and we want our entire family here to be living this way. Imagine with me for a moment if we had a room full of people that were gonna go mile number two. Imagine if we had a room full of people that were gonna bless instead of curse. I mean. We're not perfect. The church can disappoint. We can disappoint in this room. But imagine if we had a room full of people that was striving to bring the kingdom into the world. Imagine that. I mean, people may not want to come to church here, but they would look at our church and they'd be like, there is something different about that group of people. They do not act the way everybody else acts. They do not respond the way everybody else responds. They, don't, they, they, they love instead of hate when they should hate. They bless instead of curse when there's every opportunity to curse. They, they don't drop the, the luggage at a mile. They go another mile. Wouldn't it be great if we had that reputation in our communities, in our neighborhoods, among the people that we work with? Wouldn't that be amazing if we were bringing this rebellion of Jesus Christ into the world? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful to be able to uh, think through these ideas of what it meant to understand you as the Messiah, to understand you as the promised one that had come to change the world. And God, I pray that we would take seriously that, uh, that belief, but we'd also take seriously what that means for us. Lord, that we would not just simply say that you're the Messiah, to say that you're the Son of God, but we would live as if you were the Messiah. We would live as if you were the Son of God. I pray that you would give us that strength. I pray that you would give us that understanding to help bring this rebellion, this kingdom, to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.